than the affairs of God, which are less visible right at the moment. We're a time when there needs to be hope for the future, hope in our lives. So I addressed First Peter last week and didn't get very far. But uh, let's go back there again today, because this is a very uh, positive, helpful, uplifting book. Uh, he did mention, going back just a little bit uh, at the beginning, how we should have a lively hope, and that in the last time, the things of God would be revealed and our hopes and expectations would be fulfilled. Uh, and even he mentioned about salvation in verse 10 that even the prophets who wrote the Bible from Genesis through Malachi uh, inquired to look into the things that we are now living and going through and had a lot to say about it that God inspired. <clears throat> now, I recently have gone out on a limb the last few months to some degree in discussing what is ahead for us and have gone through about the 430 years of Ezekiel 4, the 70 years of Daniel and of uh, Zechariah and Jeremiah, as well as the 65 years of Isaiah 7. Now, based on those, I felt that maybe Passover and Pentecost this year would be somewhat more dramatic than they actually turned out to be. Uh, we did have some things happen around Passover time that I think were remarkable, that God showed His hand in some at least partial healings in uh, adding to our membership and I think giving us some better, deeper understanding of marriage and what it means in terms of our relationship to the Father and the Son and so on. Uh, Pentecost did not show, however you counted it, any perceptible, uh, so far at least, events that we might say tie this together. But I do not think that I'm wrong with the 430, the 70, and the 65. Uh, and I did mention along the way that, like with... Uh, when Israel was in captivity of Mitzrayim, they came out on the self-same day 430 years later. They went in on Passover, they came out on Passover. But the end-time prophecies do not indicate that. The 430 mentioned in Ezekiel 4 says, It will not be again the echoing of the mountains. It is near, it has come several times showing that it was not a specific date like it was in the original one, but that once that 430 was finished, it's very, very close. So, you, you know, when you hear echoes in the mountain, uh, it sounds further and further and further away until it disappears. And he says, it's not going to be like that. He says, when that 430 ends, you're very near the time. And the same was true of the 70. Uh, back in Daniel's day, when the 70 was finished, Babylon was destroyed by Cyrus and the Persians. And I noted to you that it was in the second year of Darius that they actually got the trip made from that Babylon over there over to here in order to start building the temple. So it was 
at least partially into the second year after Babylon fell that that occurred. Now, we know Babylon is going to fall fairly soon, but it appears that the gathering comes this time just ahead of the invading armies, because it says there in Jeremiah 50, they will flee from uh, the Assyrian as he comes in. So, uh, it does appear that there is some uh, opportunity of time in there for the 70, the 430, the 65 to all mesh, because they come at different times of the year, but I still believe we're very close. Now, there were a couple of things that disquieted me, even though I had great hope and expectancy, let's say, for Pentecost being more dramatic than certainly it was. A couple of things were in my mind that made me wonder to some degree, like Isaiah 52, where it says there that we're to flee not in haste, but it does say down below that, I will be your rear guard, or I'll have your back. In other words, it won't be a time when they are actually chasing you with a machete, but a, a time when danger has increased, and God would need to have the backs of those who are coming. So, a certain amount of danger will be at that time, and here we find ourselves relatively still in peace. It would be no problem to jump in a car and come here, or jump a plane if you're overseas and come. So it seems like things have to deteriorate somewhat in order for those scriptures to come into play. Uh, so I don't know. Another thing that made me wonder a little is even there in Joel 2, it talks about him pouring out his spirit before the great and notable day of the Lord, I think, in darkness and blackness. And that pouring out could possibly be much closer to the actual day of the Lord. So, whatever sets the gathering off, which I think is very clearly going to be signs and wonders, maybe we don't have a date. But that doesn't change the circumstances that we're in, and I have not given up hope that we're very, very near this. And let me go to Jeremiah 51, and let's review one here that we have talked about many times, because it does talk throughout chapter 50 and 51 about fleeing to Zion, let those who escaped uh, be in Zion, and the word will go out from there, and so on. Uh, and he says, don't be cut off, flee out of the midst of Babylon in, in verse 6 of chapter 51. But let's go on down to um, verse 44. It talks about Babylon here being destroyed. Her cities are a desolation, verse 43, a prophecy for what is about to come. And he says in 45, My people, go you out of the midst of her and deliver you every man his soul from the fierce anger of the eternal. So it's at a time when the fierce anger of God is about to be unleashed and Babylon is about to be destroyed. And like it says at the beginning of chapter 50, you flee ahead of the trouble, just ahead of the trouble. And maybe barely in it to the point that God has to have your back to make sure you successfully make it. 
So it does appear that times would be uh, getting far worse at the time when he actually gives a signal to go, okay? And that disquieted me a little bit because when Pentecost and Passover were coming, we still had a certain amount of peace and still do to, the, to this day, even though there's mass murders and various things going on, uh, we still are able to move about fairly freely. Anyway, it says, get out of the midst of her and deliver ahead of the fierce anger. And then he says, and lest your heart faint, lest you be discouraged, okay? And I think that there's an implication here. The conditions would be such that we could get discouraged because it might not be coming quite as fast as we want. And we want to see all this fulfilled. And it could be discouraging, so, unless your heart faint, or you get discouraged or scared, and you fear for the rumor that shall be heard in the land. Now, we hear rumor in the land a lot right now about the Democrats and, pub and Republicans or the Trump pro and the Trump hate squaring off and preparing to kill one another. Even advocating it among some of the Congress people that some of the ones that uh, are pro-Trump should be killed. And they're coming right out and saying it. They're trying to stir a revolution. So notice that in this light. Lest your heart faint, and you fear for the rumor that shall be heard in the land, a rumor shall both come one year, and after that, it says in another year, another is in uh, italics, and I looked it up, and uh, it really isn't in there. It just says in the circuit of a year. Uh, in the in the Hebrew, so you'll hear a rumor come in the revolution of a year. One is also in italics; it's not in the original. And in another year, so the Hebrew may be saying more clearly, in the cycle of a year, you'll hear a rumor, and in that cycle will also come a rumor, and not only a rumor but violence in the land, ruler against ruler. Therefore, behold, the days come that I will do judgment on the graven images of Babylon, and her slain shall fall in the midst of her. <clears throat> and then they'll sing for Babylon, but the spoilers are coming. So, it appears civil war will break out, <clears throat> and then the spoilers will not be far behind. So is the time of the gathering, perhaps about the time civil war breaks out, martial law might be about to be declared or declared, and it would become more difficult, just ahead of the northern army coming in, that it's time to flee, just ahead of it, with enough danger that God would need to protect you as you come. Now it appears that we are coming up on that based on what's coming out of Washington and the media and so on, civil war could break out late this summer, this fall, very easily, the way they're talking. So, I don't think we're far off. I think the 430, the 70, uh, and the slack that God gives us in there, even as He describes the end-time fulfillment of those, is not as specific as it was on the self-same day in Exodus 12, or 
even in the original fulfillment, it was the second year after Babylon fell that they gathered to build the temple. Now, I think this will happen ahead of it, because that's what Jeremiah and other scriptures seem to indicate, and you'll come out just ahead of the destruction of Babylon. But this Babylon's different than that Babylon. That was the ancient pagan Babylon. This is a modern Israeli, that is, of Israel, us, iteration of Babylon. We have become Babylon. And therefore, uh, God's people flee just ahead of the destruction of both Israel, whom we can identify also as Babylon. So when you throw Israel in the mix, God gives it a little play in time, but it's not way off like an echo in the mountains. It's, it's very near, it's close, it's come. So I don't think there's, I can't find any way around those three things that date it, those three signs. I can't find it. So the signs and wonders could come maybe as we get into the more dangerous part of this, and it's time then to flee, not in great haste, but get the job done because the thing is getting very, very near, and you're, it's, it's going to be bad enough that you'll need God to be backing you. So, uh, maybe I hoped and was expected a little too much a little early, but there is that time play, a little bit of slack in there that God gives, but I don't think it's much. And the way things are going, we see the leaves coming on the trees. This seem appears very, very near. So I, I don't, uh, you know, we hope for this and we hope for that, but the Scriptures have to be fulfilled as written. So there's a little but not a lot of slack. Not the echoing again of the mountains, but a little slack. And we're already maybe into the second year or getting close to it. I don't know what time... Babylon was destroyed in, uh, when the Persians took over and Darius came in. But uh, if it ended in, if it started, or the 70 ended in the fall of 70, I mean of 2017, which I think probably was the case, then we're getting into that second year uh, since then. So, I mean, we're not quite there yet, because if that was the fall of 17, fall of 18 would be a year. So the into the second year, could be this fall or late this fall, and that appears to be when some of the financial trouble and some of the uh, riots and, and civil war might be beginning, because you see the build-up right now. It's, it's happening right before our very eyes. And they're coming out, I mean, I see a lot of articles now about civil war right in front of us. So... Uh, I don't think that's changed. I think those three signs were given for a purpose, and I think that they're very near. And I wanted to make that statement because I, I don't want us to lose hope in that things might not develop exactly as we imagine or that I might hope or whatever. But the Scriptures are still there. God's still on His throne. Uh, we have to reassess. We always have. <laughs> and uh, And realize that it has to be near. So, with that caveat, let's go back to Peter, uh, realizing that we are in the times that the prophet spoke of, as he mentions, 
and that we see things that they did not see. Well, I came on down, I think, almost to the end of chapter 1, uh, and I think I ended in verse 20, showing that we have Christ who died for us as our Redeemer, as our Savior, and that that was planned and foreordained before they ever even created the earth. God knew what Satan would do. He knew what man would do. And they talked it all out and had the plan in place before they ever even recreated the earth and made it habitable for mankind. So they knew exactly how things would be. And here we are uh, in the days of Noah. (laughs) Things are about as bad now or getting there as they were then. But this was all set out ahead of time. It shouldn't amaze us that there's violence in the land, and that's what it said before the flood. There was continual violence, and every imagination was of evil. And that's pretty much our society today. So let's pick it up in 21. Who by him do believe in God? He gave us a physical reference point from the time that he lived here on this earth, to understand the Father better, because he was just like the Father. And he lived as the Father lived while he was here, and we have record of that from the apostles. And we do believe in God that raised him up from the dead and gave him glory, that your faith and hope might be in God. Uh, He lived, and he physically died. There was no Jesus Christ or Emmanuel for three days. He was in the heart of the earth. He was dead. No consciousness, no life, no nothing. He wasn't God anymore and he wasn't man anymore. He was gone, just plumb dead. And then his breath was restored and he lived. And in that, we have faith and hope in God, that we also can be resurrected as He was. So He gave us an example of what He can do. And there were many, many witnesses to the death of Christ. There were many witnesses to His renewed life. And that's all written down for us. So, we can have trust and hope. Seeing you have purified your souls in obeying the truth, So we have to have the truth, and we have to obey the truth, as I think I said last week. Through the Spirit, to unfeigned love of the brethren. Not make-believe love, not, uh, I wish I loved you, (laughs) but true, deep love of the brethren. See that you love one another with a pure heart fervently. We're not to sort of love each other or try to get along. We're to have fervent love. Now, if you kindle a fire, uh, you don't have a semi-hot fire. You always have a fervent one. Uh, As soon as you turn on a gas stove and it lights, it's hot. takes an electric one a while to get hot, but then it does get there. And it takes us a while, but... We're to have that kind of a passionate, fervent love for one another. 
which means we have to get to know one another, we have to pray for one another, we have to be concerned and help one another wherever we can, because that's how fervency is displayed. You know, you can have a couple living together, and they're occupying the same house, but there's no closeness, no fervency, no passion, no uh, <clears throat> closeness left. They're just dwelling there. And that can happen to a lot of people. And it certainly happened to the whole church in our relationship with God and our relationship with each other. So we're supposed to rekindle that in marriage. We're supposed to rekindle it as a prospective bride of Christ who are prepared to enter into a marriage. He wants that kind of fervency in our relationship with the Father and the Son and with each other as a, uh, as a picture or a type of that kind of love that we have to them. And he says the way we treat each other and the way we love each other is actually our relationship with him. But you can't be hot with one and not with the other. You, you can't do that. Your heart has to be fervent both ways. And if you're not fervently in love with the brethren, then you're not fervently in love with God. It's just what he says. So, judge yourself by that. And then what do you do about it? Being begotten again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the word of God, which lives and abides forever. So he says, you're begotten of God now. You are in a special category that no one else has. When you have hands laid on you, and God conceives you with his Holy Spirit, you are a child of God in utero, preparing to be born as God. So he said, recognize that. And that should give us an eagerness and a fervency and a passion for life that other people cannot have. Because they don't understand who they are and where they're headed and what God is trying to do with them. But with us, we have that knowledge that we can be changed from what we are today, which is pitiful at best, into spirit without fault, without problem, forever. Now that should give us an excitement if we are mindful of it, if we consider it day by day, if we don't lose focus and just get bogged down in the mundane, everyday stuff. There should be a level of excitement in us that no one in the world could have. Spring break does not compare. Uh, <laughs> I read an article and saw some pictures of kids drunk out of their minds and drugged out at spring break, which I guess just recently ended. And uh, they go there to seek whatever they think that's going to be euphoric, and they wind up... Uh, drunk out of their skulls. And it wasn't as fervent a 
great time as they thought it would be for many of them. So, there's nothing out there to compare. Even the best that the world thinks that they have turns out bad. And then he goes ahead and says that. Verse 24, For all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man as the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower thereof falls away. So their best, greatest holidays, their finest hours, their best traditions will wither and die. That's the message in Isaiah 40 that needs to be proclaimed. Uh, right here, Peter quotes it and says, We have something that the world doesn't have. Whatever dreams they have will fade and wither and die. Ours will not. So we need to be, in that sense, counting our blessings and thankful for what we do have as opposed to whining for what we do not yet have. There's the contrast. Now, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't be appealing to God like the widow did to the unjust judge and reading Isaiah where it says that he will intervene before the flesh fail before him. And Amos 7 where it says that who will help Jacob because he is small and says it twice. And then he says, I'll send Zerubbabel with the plumb line and hope will be increased because there will be signs and wonders and a gathering and things will move forward. But in the meantime, yes, we need to be imploring God, and he says, don't give him any rest until these things happen. So stay after him. But we don't need to be in a whining, negative attitude about it. In other words, pray for and hope for the things that he promises will come, but at the same time, be thankful for what we do have, that we've been called and converted and offered eternal life and glory, while the world will begin to wither more and more in front of us. You think this nation isn't beginning to wither and die? When this civil war breaks out, the America that you and I grew up in will be no more. It will be gone. Already is pretty much gone, but then it will be totally gone. And you can't walk the streets anymore. You can't drive the highways anymore because of the danger that will be there. So it all is all beginning to wither and die. But, verse 25, the word of the eternal endures forever. And this is the word which by the gospel is preached to you. So all these promises, all these things that God says shall be, will endure forever. This word is inviolate. It is true. It will happen. So then what do we do? They made a chapter break here. Wherefore, in other words, considering this, lay aside all malice and all guile and hypocrisy and envy and evil speaking. So, understanding what we've been offered, what we've already been given in terms of, of uh, begettal as a child of God, should change our whole view. And there's no room then for any malice, despite, to want to get even, to get revenge on anybody. That's what malice has to do with. 
Uh, I have a malignant attitude. I want to destroy. That's what cancer does. Malignancy destroys. So, we're not to have any malice. Not let our minds go toward destruction of or, or vengeance against anyone. Even those who might be against us. <clears throat> we have to lay that aside. And not let our minds dwell on that. It's easy to go there. But we cannot let that happen. We need to be focused on our goal and our purpose and let the rest take care of itself and let God take care of it as He will. Uh, so, we don't need to lay on our beds and plot mischief against anybody. In fact, we're told not to. And all guile. What is guile? Well, guile is some pretense of your mind that is not spoken. Something you don't let out to others, but you are secretly trying to work out things behind the scenes to cause trouble. We've seen that happen with people here who would not come right out and say what they were thinking, but they would go around with guile, with secrecy, trying to disrupt and cause disharmony and division. That's what guile has to do with. And hypocrisy, where we're saying we're this, and yet we're not. No room for hypocrisy. And envying. Don't envy anybody anything. Uh, be thankful for what you do have. And if you need something else, ask God for it. But don't envy what somebody else has. And all evil speaking. That covers a wide gamut of things that can be said that should not be said. And we need to be very, very careful to control our minds and our tongues, considering that they're the very children of God. Now, the things we just read in verse 1, did Christ do those things? Did He think those things? No, he did not. Now, sometimes he confronted evil very directly. So I'm not saying there's no time to confront evil directly. Remember the money changers in the temple. Remember when he addressed the uh, Pharisees and called them snakes and sons of Satan? Whited sepulchers and so on. So there is a time to come right out front and say something and speak the truth. But there's not room for these attitudes in verse 1 and to have subversion and malice and envying and so on in your own mind and heart. Now, when evil confronts you, as the Pharisees did Christ, he didn't go around behind their backs and try to find a way to undermine them. He just called a spade a spade right out front. This is what it is. So I think that shows you his mind on it. Uh, he wasn't devious, but he was forthright when the time came. And we can be the same way. So, don't have these carnal, human thoughts of verse 1, but be like newborn babes, desiring the sincere milk of the Word, that you may grow thereby. <coughs> so instead of showing the works of the flesh, 
in these attitudes, we need to be taking in, like a newborn babe does, the Word of God. How does a newborn babe uh, respond to those things which are put before him for him to begin to learn? A child just learning has great curiosity. They want to try this, try that, do something else, crawl, walk, talk. Uh, their minds are open to all kinds of learning and suggestion. Uh, they begin to want to taste various things <coughs> and see what they like and what they don't like. So children, in other words, are very respondent to that which is laid out there for them to learn. And God's Word is there for us, and we need to be focusing on what is there for us to understand and to learn. And he says, If so be, you have tasted that the Eternal is gracious. Have you tasted that? I think we all have. We've seen His mercies. We've seen His healings. We've seen His intervention. We've seen answers to prayer. We've seen some where no was the answer and we didn't like it. But uh, we've seen those things and how our lives have changed for the better. Many, many people can look back on what their life was before they were converted. And if you compare the years since, you can see some improvement. The things aren't as bad as they were. Now, in some respects, they could even be worse in terms of trials, tribulations, temptations, even sicknesses, and so on, than they were. But you have a foundation of God's Word and the adoption of His Spirit as sons, so you have goals and focuses and things that are important that you didn't have before, so that we can be like Paul said, we can have all kinds of troubles and not be discouraged. Troubles, but not lose hope. I forget exactly how he put it, but you know the scripture I'm referring to. So, there is something there that we have, and he's been gracious to give it to us. To whom coming is unto a living stone, disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God and precious. So he came here as God. And he was alive, and he's referred to as the stone, the chief cornerstone, and so on, Ephesians 2.20, and in the Old Testament, various places, Zechariah 3. Uh, and men hated him. Now, they thought they loved God. They thought they loved Moses. They thought they loved Abraham. But truth was, they hated God. They hated his word. They hated these... Apostles who came, I was just reading in Acts this morning of how the apostles were accused and the, and the leaders wanted to kill them. And then uh, Gamaliel, was it, said, no, let's don't do that. You could be found to be fighting God himself. So he says, don't kill these men. Uh, if it's of God, it'll happen regardless of what you do. And some men, it'll fade out. So what did they do? They beat them and told them again, 
don't preach Christ. And then they turned them loose. So they, went and, <laughs> they didn't kill them, but they went ahead and beat them again and gave them another severe warning and then turned them loose. So Christ was disallowed of men, uh, both as a human being come before them and his memory as espoused by the apostles and preached, they hated and tried to destroy them all and ultimately did, except for John. Killed them all. You also, as lively stones. Now, he puts uh, he calls Christ a lively stone. Not a dead head, not a blockhead, if you will. But a lively stone, full of life, full of power, full of strength. And he says, you also should be lively. Now, didn't we talk about with a pure heart fervently just a little bit ago? And now he says, a living stone, not just a rock laying on the ground, but something that is alive in the manner that Christ is. You're built up a spiritual house. Now, the temple was built of, of stone, and Christ said, it would be knocked down and not one stone left upon another. So the analogy here of us being stones in the temple is used, just like the, that temple was built with walls of stone. And the spiritual temple being built now should be from lively stones that build a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, not an unholy one, not an unclean one, but a holy one, who live according to the way of God, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to the Father by Emmanuel the Christ. Spiritual sacrifices, what's that? We sacrifice our time, our energy, our thought press process to pray for others, uh, to do physical, spiritual and physical deeds for others, which are accounted as spiritual sacrifices. Uh, what did a lamb do as a physical sacrifice? It gave its life that the sin of a man might be forgiven. Christ gave a spiritual sacrifice, His life, that we might be forgiven and helped. So when He says, become spiritual sacrifices, that means we give our life. That doesn't mean we... Time, uh, our energy, our thought process, our love for others. And that those spiritual sacrifices that we give to one another as lively stones, one to another, you know, a spiritual house isn't built with one stone. If you're going to build a house out of stones, it takes a lot of stones and a lot of mortar and a lot of time to get it built. And if we're a spiritual house, then the stones have to be bound together, do they not? If you stack it up there and you don't put mortar in there, uh, they won't stick together and they'll fall apart. And we have to have the Spirit of God as the mortar that holds us together. And to be close one another and to be giving spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to Him. And that builds treasure in heaven. And treasure makes you worth saving. Wherefore also it is contained elect and precious. And he that believes on him shall not be confounded. 
Now, belief in Him doesn't mean just belief that He came and you can say Jesus and everything's fine. True belief means obeying what He says. You know, you don't really believe in Him if it's just a name and nothing accomplished. And you're just a hearer of some of the words and not all the words, as the Protestants are. And you won't be confounded. If you really live by these words, your salvation will be assured because God can't help Himself. Let's face it. He created us to be saved. It is His good pleasure to give us the kingdom. That's what He wants to do with a fervent heart. Each one of you who have been called and baptized out of this world He has a fervent desire to give His kingdom. And He's hoping with all His heart that you will respond to Him in a favorable way and not be confounded. He wouldn't have called you if He didn't think you could make it. Now, there are times when you might not think you can make it, but He thinks you can. And that's why He called you. So, let's do our part to make our calling and election sure, as I think Paul said. Unto you, therefore, which believe he is precious, but unto them which be disobedient, see, he contrasts that in attitude, that the belief includes obedience. Immediately after saying that we need to uh, believe him, He shows obedience as a part of that belief. Them which be obedient, the stone which the builders disallowed, the same is made the head of the corner. So he is the chief foundation stone. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, even to them which stumble at the word being disobedient. So when you preach obedience to the law of God... Nearly all so-called Christians stumble on that. They can't handle it. They just will not believe you have to keep the law. I have a son who grew up being taught the law. And then he read something in Galatians, hard to be understood, and decided the law was of no effect, and that the law is bad and it'll kill you. And he hates the law of God now even though he claims to be a Christian. He's, I mean, he's still close to me. We're still buddies. We can go camping together, whatever. But we don't talk religion much because we simply disagree. And he did something, uh, wrote a paper about how the law shouldn't be done. And I did a series of sermons here, uh, in which I showed very clearly that the law of God cannot be done away with and must be kept. It was turned into quite a few sermons, actually, some years ago. And I sent it to him. I said, I read your paper, now listen to these sermons. I got, I'm sure he didn't. But I love my son, don't get me wrong. But we're just not on the same page. Just not there. God's Word is a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense to him because he's disobedient to the law. Now, he wouldn't say he's disobedient. He'd say it's done away. 
But that's just playing with words. If you say it's done away, then you're disobeying it. You're not obeying it. Because he still thinks he's in God's good graces. I got news for him, and he'll learn that one of these days soon. Whereunto also they were appointed. Satan appointed them to be disobedient. He has deceived the whole world. That's an appointment to disobedience. And God even, by giving us human nature, appointed us to disobedience. And Adam and Eve didn't take long getting there. And neither have we. So both God made us vulnerable, and Satan then very quickly deceived us. And that's where the whole world lies right now. Except for a few precious stones that he is assembling his temple with. And we're included in that. Now, do we need to count our blessings or what? And he goes on and says that. we got these people out here that stumble at God's Word and they're disobedient to it. And he's a rock of offense to them. But you aren't. You are a chosen generation. Now, he worked through Herbert Armstrong to choose a generation of people that he says in Matthew 24 will not die out until these things are accomplished. And Ezra and Haggai both say there will still be old men who saw worldwide at its best and will see the last temple at its best and there will be no comparison. So, we are that chosen generation that he speaks of here. Now, his generation was chosen at the beginning of the New Testament church. And there was not much in between 100 A.D. and 1900 A.D., 1900 years later. Now, was there? (laughs) They tried to trace a few people that kept the Sabbath and the Holy Days through the Middle Ages, and it's very nip and tuck to find anyone that you could truly say was a Christian, although there were some Sabbath and peacekeepers who came across uh, to Jamestown and and, uh, settled here in this country. But never since the first century has there been a calling like there was here at this end time that is at all discernible to us in history. So we're a chosen generation. Out of this generation, He chose you and me and others like us. You're a royal priesthood. Now, the world made a big to-do over a royal wedding recently, which may not be so royal if you look into the actual family lines of European royalty. But they made a big deal of it. And they don't make a big deal out of us, do they? Well, they're going to make a big deal out of us. It's going to be all negative. They're going to try to kill us all, every last one of us. That's what Satan has in mind, and that's where he is steering the minds of the leaders of this world. But we're a royal priesthood. You can't have any higher royalty than Christ himself and the Father. And he is our high priest on high, and we are a part of that royal priesthood, called out to be priests, kings and priests in the millennium. Our reign will start very shortly now, probably less than ten years from now. We will be a royal priesthood in toto, entirely. 
without reservation. We won't be like we are anymore. We'll truly be royal. A holy nation shall be living in holiness, obedient to the laws, the rules, the words of God. Living by every word of God. A purchased people. It says peculiar. That's a very, very bad translation. The Greek means purchased. What do you do when you go to the store? You see a lot of items on the shelves, don't you? And you're kind of picky, aren't you? When you go in Smith's Food King or Albertson's or Target or Walmart or wherever you go, there are thousands of products there. And you have this little basket, don't you? And you might half fill or fill that basket, but you're pretty picky about what you buy. There's a lot of stuff there you just don't want. So you leave it on the shelf. And those things which have more value to you than what you have in your wallet, be it Chase or some other, or cash or whatever is in your wallet, you have to value that item on that shelf more than you value the money that you have. And therefore, you're willing to give the money that you have for that. Now, sometimes I see a product that I actually want, but I look at the price and I suddenly say, no, I think I want the money in my pocket more than I want that, even though I would like to have that. Now, when Christ looked down and decided to call people, he was very picky about it. There were billions of people on this earth, still are, for a short while yet. And he left most of them on the shelf. And there were some that he might have really wanted, but he says, no, they're the mighty and the noble. I don't know whether I want to pay that price right now. But there are some weak and base, and uh, they may not be worth quite as much, but I think I'll buy them anyway. So he purchased us with his blood. Now, we know that that blood ultimately is going to cover everyone, but it's not covering everyone now. And those that he bought now, he plans to take home and use now for a greater purpose than those which he has purchased for later. So he paid the price for us now and called us now. So we're a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and a purchased people. Now, they didn't pay much for him, did he? Did they? Thirty pieces of silver. Here's the king of the universe, and only brought thirty pieces of silver. But he's willing to give his life that is worth more than anything in the universe, other than the Father, for you and me, which don't amount to much. But look how he classes us now. He doesn't look at us as weak and base. He doesn't look at us as failures. He doesn't look at us as underachievers. Here is his view of us. Peter encapsulates it very nicely. 
Here's the way God looks at you and me. He speaks of those things are not that are not as if they already were. He speaks of things in a positive way. All Israel shall be saved ultimately. So once we're begotten and we're part of this chosen generation, he looks at us as his children. Now you can, and parents have, tried and tried and tried to conceive a child and couldn't. Abraham and Sarah, for one, couldn't do it. And then God intervened, and Isaac was conceived by a miracle. So we can go through a lot of frustration on this earth and nothing be conceived. But you know, all those attempts that they made to conceive Abraham and Sarah that didn't work, they didn't consider too valuable later on. I mean, there was a relationship there that might have been a good relationship physically. But it didn't really produce anything except physical pleasure at the time. But when God intervened and there was an actual conception, that night became quite memorable to them once they understood that it had occurred. And even though that baby wasn't born, that that particular attempt at conception became so important because it produced and he began to grow in Sarah's womb and they looked upon that one as their child. And that became special to them. Wasn't born yet. Couldn't count the toes and fingers yet. Didn't have sonograms. Didn't know whether it was male or female except that God had said you'll have a son. So they knew it would be in faith. But it became so special to them. And then Abraham would put his ear to the tummy and put his hand on and feel for movement, to listen for a heartbeat. All the things that daddies do, he did. Because he knew that there was something special there. Now, think of yourself that way. It will help you obey if you really encapsulate that into your thinking that you are that special conceived child of God. That doesn't mean we need to get vain and egocentric. It just means that we need to recognize that God has worked something special there and that He includes us in this category of verse 9. That we have become special to Him. And we need to think of ourselves that way. If you think of yourself as a sinner, as a no good, nothing, then what incentive do you have to do good? Because you know you're not any good anyhow, and therefore there's no sense in even trying. But if you focus on what God says you will be as His conceived child, then you'll try to live up to that. And it makes it better. It makes it easier to obey because you have this picture of success. I never listened to the heartbeat or felt 
my wife's stomach to see if the baby was dead. I didn't have that attitude or that approach. What if the kid died? Let me feel as if it was any move. No. No, it was positive. It's, let me feel it move. Oh, I guess I'll have to wait a minute. Oh, there it is. It was positive. And you need to think of yourself as a conceived child that shall be born as a royal priesthood, a chosen generation, and all these things he says. Look at yourself that way. God called me. He put his spirit in me. I will succeed. And I know that I need to go to him for his spirit, his encouragement, his inspiration to do that. So you go in a positive mood and attitude to God in prayer. Yeah, you repent when you recognize you made mistakes. And you repent of the deception and deceit and the evilness that still is in your mind. But at the same time, you don't picture yourself as a sinner anymore. If God says, there are those to whom I will not impute sin, why do we impute sin to ourselves? and think of ourselves as a sinner, per se. When we were in the world, we were sinners, per se. Now we are not. We are begotten of God, and we are holy. A holy people, he said. Think of yourself that way. And then when you don't live up to it, ask for God's forgiveness that such a royal person would have screwed up so miserably. And get rid of the guilt and the doubt and the sin and resolve not to do it further with his help and move on toward your crown that is laid up for you. To him that overcomes will I grant to sit with me in my throne. So it's simple. Overcome and you're going to be there. You're called to be there. You're called to be born just like your child was conceived to be born. All right, he says, understand these things that you should show forth the praises of him who has called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. In other words, bask in the sunshine. Be thankful for the truth that you have. Honor and glorify him that he's removed the scales from your eyes and the deafness from your ears so that you can see what is ahead and go toward the light. If you're in total darkness, you don't know where to go, do you? I see people around us who are in darkness. Now, they may be decent people, but they don't see any way to go. They're confused, they're frustrated, they have physical goals, physical purposes, but they don't see any light. And when you're in darkness, you just simply stumble and fall and flounder around. Now, if you see some light at the end of the tunnel, you do what? You head for it. It gives you direction. It gives you purpose. It makes you realize there is light, and I can see some out there, so there must be more where that's coming from, and you head for it right now. Now, we were in darkness. 
The people that dwelt in darkness, Isaiah says, have seen a great light. That's what he's saying right here. So, look at that light, which in time past were not a people, but are now the people of God. So, you don't look upon yourself as a normal people anymore. You look upon yourself as the people of God. Therefore, you need to act and look like God as much as possible. But are now the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. We're living under mercy, under grace. And those two words are almost, if not totally, synonymous. Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims. You are of a different country. You're of a different kingdom. You're not like the people around you. You've seen a marvelous light. And now you are the people of God. So, you are strangers and pilgrims here. Wandering about as God's children who are supposed to live by His standards in a world that doesn't understand God's standards and is living Satan's way. So we're a stranger here in this world. We're different than everybody around us. You go to any of the stores in town, and everybody around you has no clue about why they're here. And you're the only light in the building. Don't look upon yourself as better than them. You're just a human being but you're imbued with the Spirit of God and therefore have a goal and a purpose that is beyond theirs. And you're here not to disdain them, but someday to help them achieve what you are achieving. Don't look down on them. We look forward for them. Oh, boy, I see you doing that and thinking that and this and this with you, but I'll sure be glad when you or in the millennium, or the great white throne judgment, and I can truly talk to you about these things, and you won't throw things at me for it. So, you don't look down on them, you look forward for them, and to them, and hope that you can help them someday. What does an ambassador do? He doesn't use that word here, I think, but Paul did. Ambassadors for Christ... Uh, what does an ambassador in a foreign country do? He represents his country, hopefully, for good. He is there to promote peace and goodness and goodwill between his country and that one which he's in as a stranger and a pilgrim that is a strange land to him. He probably doesn't even speak the language if he's a U.S. ambassador to wherever. He has to have an interpreter, but he's there for good. So he says, you're strangers and pilgrims, and you're not like those around you. Therefore, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. And that's why he says that our friendship is not with the world. Uh, it doesn't mean we don't have a certain amount of, of uh, contact with the world. Now, Christ was not of the world, and yet he went to the Pharisees and Sadducees' homes and even had them into his home at times and sat down to eat with them. Uh, but it wasn't a continual or a constant or a habitual thing that he did all the time. 
Then, in other words, there's a certain amount of concourse with the world. Uh, we take food to some people in the world and have a little bit of contact with them that way, partially for personal gain. One of them's my mechanic, our mechanic, and I like to keep them happy. So when I have extra food, I take it to them, and that builds a good relationship. Now I'm not going to go and and uh, spend every evening with them, you know, uh, but. We can have a certain amount of concourse without becoming friends of the world with the world and then begin to do the things of the world. You can't hang out in bars, in other words, without becoming like everybody in there. And having hung in some bars many, many years ago, I can attest that it is very, very easy to fall back into that mode of thinking if you get around those people. It's just automatic. So we have to be careful and be strangers and pilgrims and not go to their fleshly lusts. Having your conduct honest among the Gentiles, anyone who is not spiritually a Jew, a called out one now, is spiritually a Gentile, even blood Israelites. And God says so there in Exodus, I mean Exodus, Ezekiel 16. But they look like Gentiles to him. <coughs> so spiritually speaking is what's important. That whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation, when God begins to visit trouble upon them. Now they're not going, if they understand what we believe, they're not going to like it now. We don't go to the same excess of riot. We don't eat the things they eat. We don't drink the amount they drink. We don't use the language they use. We don't do the things that they do. Even though we might be around them, and they're not going to like what we do. And they won't like it until things change. Then he says, Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the eternal sake, whether it be to the king as supreme or to governors as unto them that are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of them that do well. For so is the will of God, that with well-doing you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. Now, he says here to obey the rulers that you have around you. And Romans 13 certainly echoes that, as Paul stated. But then you have to balance that against other scriptures and find the proper wisdom for your circumstance at the moment. Now, when the apostles in Acts 5, as I uh, discussed a little earlier, were told by the rulers not to preach Christ and to do what they said, and it says that we don't like your doctrines, they hated their doctrines, well, they said they obeyed the Old Testament, but they didn't because they hated the apostles' doctrines. So they didn't really understand the Bible. But what was said there in Acts 5.29, the apostles told those men, we are to obey God rather than men. So, as a general rule, we follow what man has done in order to get along with the leaders and the rulers and so on, uh, and the ordinances that they give. 
But any time there is a conflict with what God would have you do, you obey God rather than man. And always you do that. God has to be first. And it doesn't matter if they persecute you, beat you, or kill you. <coughs> you put God first. So, yes, up to a point you obey God, a man unless he interferes with your obedience to God. Then you obey God. He even makes that in 1 Corinthians 7 with marriage. You obey your, let's say if it's your husband, you obey him unless there is a conflict with what God tells you to do, then you obey God rather than the husband, even if it means divorce. You put God first. And if it comes to divorce, God says if, if that divorce comes as a result of you trying to obey God and your mate not allowing you to obey God, then he says you're no longer bound. You're free to marry somebody else only in the faith, he says, not somebody outside. So, he makes it very clear there that we put God first above man, even our own mate. And that works for women or men, either one. If a woman won't let a man follow God in peace, then he can put her away just like she can put him away. We put God first, regardless, always. As free... And not using your liberty for a cloak of maliciousness, but as the servants of God. So we are free <coughs> from following the ways of this world. And we always put God first and use the freedom of His way of life <coughs> to direct our life as opposed to whatever man might put on us that is ungodly. So he says then, honor all men. Love the brotherhood. So we honor the people around us in the world as potential sons of God someday. We take it deeper than that and love the brotherhood. And we fear God. Honor the king. So he says, everybody around you, from God to mankind, you should hold in respect and honor we're not to look down on people. They are all the children of God and will someday be given the opportunity of salvation. Don't look down on them. Look positively toward their future in spite of what they might be today. That should be our attitude. And he, he says it even deeper. Servants, be subject to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the presumptuous jerks. Now, there still was slavery in the early New Testament, and there were people in the church who were slaves of other people. We don't grasp that fully today, since in our society uh, we're not quite yet in total slavery. We will be soon as a nation, but not quite. But he says, even if you're a slave, you should honor your owner, whether they be good ones or bad ones. That is an attitude a Christian should have, is honor toward everybody. Don't look down on anybody. Or, putting it differently, don't, don't look up upon yourself. Don't put yourself above them. Did Christ put himself above anyone when he was here on the earth? 
No. He told them what they were at times, but he did not lift himself up and brag about who he was. Don't you know who I am? <coughs> you better obey me or you're going to hell. No, he didn't, he didn't approach it that way. Called them a spade when it needed to be. But he didn't look down upon them in, in the sense of feeling that he was better than they were. For this is thankworthy, if a man for conscience toward God endure grief, suffering wrongfully. Will you suffer wrong at times? Yes, you will. Will people falsely accuse you? Yes, they will. Will they rightly accuse you? Yes, they will. Both will happen. And he explains that. For what glory is it if when you be buffeted for your faults, you shall take it patiently? I mean, if you actually did it and the accusation is true, uh, what's the reward for being patient about that? You did it, and you're getting your just desserts for it. But if, when you do well and suffer for it, and you take that patiently, this is acceptable with God. Now, our reaction when we are falsely accused is to defend ourselves, to get angry at those who accused us, to be frustrated, to become malicious, as we read up there in verse 1 of chapter 2, and to have guile to get even, uh, to be hypocritical in our attitude, and so on. It is only human, and therefore humanly natural, to defend oneself, and to try to explain, well, you're wrong. No, what if you are falsely accused, and you take that patiently, then that is acceptable to God. If you don't take it patiently, is implied, and you get upset and frustrated and try to get even, then that is not acceptable to God. For even hereunto were you called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. Now, when he was falsely accused of all kinds of things, Isaiah 53 tells us he answered not a word. He did not defend himself. He was like a lamb to the slaughter. It does no good anyway. Even if you try to defend yourself, those who are accusing you will not accept it and won't believe it. So what's the good in that? It's just futility. And God says, if you're patient when you're accused, then that's acceptable to me. Christ took all that patiently, and that was highly acceptable to God, a son in whom he was well pleased. So we need to follow his example and in his steps. Who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth, referring again back to chapter 2, verse 1. We're still in 2, but verse 1. No guile there. Who, when he was reviled, threatened not again. He didn't threaten back. He didn't excoriate, chew, revile them. When he suffered, he threatened not. 
He's the example we're to follow. But committed himself to him that judges rightly. So what do we do? I've been accused of a lot of things here. There have been a few times I've gone over the edge and tried to defend myself a bit. But I decided early on it did no good. There's no purpose in it. And if I'd be patient and let God take care of it, He would. So what do we do when we're accused? We're to commit ourselves to Him who judges rightly. If we've been misjudged by the world, by our enemies, by whoever, hey, just take it patiently and leave it in God's hands. Now, when God, when God gave David that choice to be judged by men, his peers, or to commit himself to God's judgment, he said, oh boy, don't turn me loose on men. I'll take your judgment. It may be harsh, and I need it, but I'd sure rather put myself in your hands than man's. That's exactly what we're to do, and it's what Christ did. Any wonder that David is a man after God's own heart. Who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree that we, being dead to sin, should live unto righteousness by whose stripes you were healed. Now, this isn't necessarily a promise of healing right here. He's talking of spiritual healing. It was through his sacrifice that we are allowed access to the Father and the Holy Spirit, and that we were spiritually healed from our carnal human sickness and selfishness. Healed by Him. For you were as sheep going astray, but are now returned to the shepherd and bishop of your souls. Now Israel was God's, and Christ was married to Israel in the Old Testament. And because she went astray, He divorced her, divorced all Israel. And now He has offered a few, us included, a new marriage contract, and has restored us to Christ, the shepherd and bishop of our souls, is our status now. We have been restored. We are in grace and in good favor and under mercy. Therefore, we are an anointed, a conceived, royal priesthood, a holy people, and all those things, a chosen generation, a purchased people, purchased by His blood. Now, is Peter saying this so that we might forget it and go sit in a corner and eat worms and die? No. He's trying to encourage us that what we've been given is so important that instead of whining about what we don't have, let's be thankful for what we do have and deal properly with what we don't have. And he shows, and already did in chapter 1, that we would have all kinds of trials, troubles, difficulties, and pain, and tears. That is what the Christian walk is all about. You will have those things. You could tell your kid that. You know, I'm going to rear you, and you're going to be under my control until 20, biblically speaking, but 18 in this world. Forget 20, because they're not going to listen to that. But they're under your jurisdiction for those years. 
and you are going to tell them, this is my house, you will live by my rules. You don't live by my rules, and you will live under persecution, trials, troubles, temptations, and punishments, unless and until you follow my rules. And God is doing the exact thing with His begotten children. He has not removed us from the troubles that beset the people around us, has He? No, we still have our troubles, trials, tribulations, temptations, difficulties, and sins. But He said, overcome that. I have overcome the world, now you go and do the same. So we're not to be here discouraged and frustrated... We're here to be obedient children who hear what the Father says. You're going to have trouble. Come to me and I will help solve your trouble. And if you are an obedient child, I will be so happy to give my kingdom to you, deliver you from your sin and carnal mind, and convert you into incorruptible immortality to live forever with no more pain, no more tears, no more sorrow, if you will do as Christ did and walk in His steps. There's an awful lot of encouragement here, but if we will do our part, God is certainly going to see to our salvation.